This season of What She Did Next is brought to you by Women's Agenda, a daily news publication for women. It was fantastic to start to see people of all different disabilities posting about their life and, and not hiding away anymore. And I, I just thought there's a real opportunity here to highlight fashion and disability, but in a way that's probably not been done before. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. The way we dress and present ourselves to the world is something a lot of us can take for granted. But what if the seemingly simple task of doing up a button or tying a shoelace wasn't possible for you? My guest today is Jenny McAllister, and she's on a mission to transform the fashion industry, to make it more inclusive and accessible for the one in five Australians living with a disability. Jenny herself suffered a stroke at the age of 21, and that life-changing event, which she was lucky to survive, left her with reduced mobility that makes it difficult to grip or hold things and requires the use of a wheelchair or walking frame to get around. One thing that didn't change after Jenny had her stroke was her love of fashion, but finding clothes she can wear that are stylish and make her feel good has been hampered by the mainstream fashion industry, being slow to cater for people with disability. Through her new business, Stylability, Jenny aims to work with major fashion brands and retailers to make their designs more inclusive, looking to overseas brands like Tommy Hilfiger that are leading the way in adaptive fashion. I spoke to Jenny about her new venture and the incredible journey she's been on, and we talked about the business and life lessons she's learned along the way. She is such an inspiring woman and has plenty of wisdom to share, so I am very excited to bring you this conversation with Jenny McAllister. So Jen, I've been really looking forward to our chat today because I think what you're doing with styleability is so interesting, but can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what life as a kid looked like for you? Yeah, um, so first of all, thanks for having me. I'm super excited You're to welcome. be part of the podcast. <laughs> um, so my family as a kid was, um, I had a really great childhood. I grew up, I'm the youngest of, um, of three children. I had two older brothers. And I grew up in a family that was very close, very, uh, we looked out for each other. We had lots of family holidays, lots of fun. Even though I'm the youngest, I was probably the most bossiest. Um, <laughs> I bossed the brothers around. Um, but we just had that kind of, I suppose, quintessential English upbringing that was summers in the countryside, out playing for hours on end, um, Christmases indoors when it was freezing cold and snowing. Yeah, and it was just always about family and spending time together. And, I mean, you did mention you're from the UK. We should mention that you live in Australia now, obviously, but we can talk a little bit more about how you ended up here later. Um, But I also read that you've always had a love of fashion. So where do you think that interest came from? Uh, Yeah, so even as a child, um, I always wanted to be a model. (laughs) (laughs) It was either a model or a ballerina. I did ballet for for quite a quite a few years actually but um model and, and fashion just always um 
just always interested me and I found that as I grew older when I became a teenager I was someone that would always um I suppose people watch I was quite intrigued by people especially what they were wearing and I would often look at people and wonder why they'd chosen the outfit or where they were going in the outfit and then I would also in my head sort of imagine how I would style it differently or what would I do differently if I was wearing that and then I worked in the UK um, when I was old enough to get into employment. I went, my first job was in retail and I worked for a major uh, high street brand in the UK. And that, it's, it's a very iconic brand over there. And it just really kind of, um, it was everything really to me. It was, it was where I wanted to be. I just loved the clothes. I loved the way that people would come in and buy a new outfit and the way it would transform how they felt or how they looked and the way that people would perceive themselves, the way that other people would perceive them with what they were wearing. So, yeah, even from a young age, I just always have been interested in fashion but also the power that fashion can have or clothes can have on on a person. You moved to London at some point for study and work. So what was that experience like and, and where did you see your career heading at that point? Were you studying fashion or did you choose something different? So I didn't actually move to London. We still lived in the country town, but I used to get the train to London, which was a, a two-hour train journey. Um, right. I would travel in the morning, it'd be pitched back at night, uh, in the morning and then travel home at night and it'd be pitched back at night. Um uh, and that was actually working more in a corporate role, um, but would spend all of my paycheck on fashion and shopping and clothes. So <laughs> I don't think that ever really left me. And every weekend I would be the sort of, I was always the person that friends would come to and say, what are you wearing for this party or what are you wearing this weekend? And can they help me decide what to wear or how can I put this outfit together? So although it was a very different working environment for me I still had that passion of wanting to be involved in clothes and and fashion Mm. and then you were on your on your way to college one day when your life suddenly took a very unexpected turn are you able to share what happened on that day back in 2003 yeah so um I was actually took a complete change of focus and decided to study um alternative medicine and science and I was I just finished my um my written exam and it was my practical exam and for a few weeks before I hadn't felt very well but I was working full-time studying part-time and living my life of a 21 year old so I was out all the time (laughs) um and I was just really busy and I I put it down to not feeling well, but I was probably overdoing it and probably just a bit stressed. And on this particular morning, it was the day of my final exam, and I drove to college, drove into the car park, and as I got out of the car, I just remember falling forward and trying to shout, but no words actually coming out of my mouth. And then that was all I remember. And the next thing I remember was waking up in intensive care and I was on life support and on multiple tubes and machines. And I had a ma- uh, major brain hemorrhage, mm. which was an abnormal blood vessel from birth, but um, it 
for some reason had burst on that day and um yeah I ended up being in intensive care and what they call locked in syndrome which is mm. where you can blink and you're fully aware of the surroundings but you can't move or talk and I was in that state probably for about six weeks um, and then probably didn't start moving my fingers until about maybe about four months in. Um, and then my speech came about eight months after that. And you were just 21 when that happened? Yeah, 21, yeah. Right. And so that was a, a stroke, which I guess a lot of people don't expect to happen at such a yeah. young age. Yeah. Um, and that was nothing that anyone had prepared you for or that you knew was a risk or no. anything like that? And I think as well at 21, I haven't really experienced much in terms of disability. I didn't know anyone who had a disability. No one in our family had a disability. And the word stroke, I was associated with someone in their 70s and 80s. So um, at 21, it was a massive life-changing event but also a really difficult transition to go from being really fit and healthy and very independent to now being super dependent on everyone um, mm. and not being able to do anything for myself and, and this new world of disability and trying to sort of find my way around yeah it's really hard. Mm. Well, yeah you've written so beautifully on your blog about you know not just what happened on that day but that very intense period of recovery and yeah. rehab that you had to go through. Um, you know, you, as you said, you essentially had to relearn how to, to walk and talk, but yeah. you actually said it was the emotional impact of dealing with such a huge life change that was probably the hardest thing. I mm. mean, what are some of the, the biggest changes that you've had to navigate and adjust to? Yeah, I think when it happens, I probably put a lot of pressure on myself to recover physically um, and if I wasn't doing 110% then I wasn't giving it enough and I spent so long focusing on the physical recovery that I actually forgot to stop and I suppose grieve for myself I had lost a massive part of who I was I still looked like me um, but I was no longer the old Jenny and so I think having to find yourself again in a body that works very differently and also the way that people perceive you because you are now put into this box or this pigeonhole. But it's really hard. You know, often I would go out and people would talk to the person that I was with rather than talk to me um, or make assumptions, but because I was in a wheelchair, I couldn't understand or I wasn't capable. And that was really difficult. So I, I think for a long time I... I put the emphasis on the physical recovery and I spent a long time sort of putting, I suppose, putting barriers in the way and saying, well, when I can walk again, then I'll be happy or when I can do X, Y and Z, then I'll go to that party. And I kind of stopped living for a long while because I never felt like I was quite good enough or back to normal. And it got to the point where I realised that I wasn't really living, I was just surviving. So I had to really um, allow myself the time to grieve and to be a bit kind to myself and to accept that what's happened has happened. No one can change it. But what I can do is be grateful for what I have 
and not kind of look at what I don't have. And I've tried to keep that mentality throughout and really focus on the here and now and not worry too much about all the other stuff in between. Mm. Well, I guess what this was about 17 years ago now, I mm. think. Mm. I mean, I was curious to know what it's meant for your work life over over the years. Mm. I mean, was it a long time before you could work again? Did you have to shift your career plans? Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, work um, wasn't even a focus for me for at least the first, I would say, probably 10 years because there were so many other obstacles that were in the way. And it felt too hard, too far, too overwhelming and too sort of far out of my reach. Um, And I also felt, and often I think we do this as women anyway, but I I often felt that when I worked in a corporate role before my stroke, um, I felt as a woman I always had to prove that I was good enough and I could do the job just as good as any other man in that office. And now I felt that I had to not only prove myself as a woman, but I had to prove myself as a woman with a disability. And that was really challenging, having to feel that I had to showcase I was capable, more than capable, of doing the job, regardless of the physical limitations that I now had. So what kind of work did you sort of venture back into after that 10 years or so? So it was very much admin-based, um, computer work, stuff that I could do without too much restrictions and finding ways of just being a bit more creative in the ways that I do things. Um, and the kind of stuff that I could do either at home or in an environment that was easy for me to access. Mm. And at some point you ended up over here in Australia. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking to you today over, well, you're over in Perth. How did that come about? So Australia was always something that our family, we always wanted to be in Australia and my mum and dad came here when we were children and fell in love with Australia. And um, we moved over when I was probably about 12 years old for a few years and then moved back to the UK. But it was always the place that we always wanted to be. So we, as a family, decided that um, we were planning on coming back in April and I collapsed. We were planning on coming back at the end of April and I collapsed at the beginning of April. So we had to put it on hold, obviously, for, for many years. And then I think it was about four years after I collapsed, we just decided it was the right time and... Yeah, it it was really good for all of us, I think, to just start again. We talked earlier about your love of fashion, and this is something that actually played a huge role in your recovery. So can you talk a bit about that and how this became so important to you? Yeah, so I, um, even in the hospital, I really struggled with um, wearing hospital clothes and I felt for a long time that I kind of lost my identity. I was a hospital patient and really just a member. And part of that really was what I was wearing. The clothes I was wearing was very baggy and uh, very bland and just not, not the kind of style that I used to wear. And I felt like 
what I was wearing wasn't new. So I feel like that also made me lose some of who I was. And um, I remember saying to my mum, I really feel like I need to find myself again. And, and that was through clothes and going shopping and finding my style. And my style really had to change because of the disability. Things that I used to love to wear, I could no longer wear. High heels were no longer an option. Certain clothes with zips or um, difficult hooks were really inaccessible. So it was kind of finding my, a new style, but also a style that worked with my disability. And as with everyone, the style evolves and grows. And I found that the more that I found myself, the more I sort of found myself. And my confidence grew and I felt more like me. Um, and I think I just realised that there must be so many other people out there who also dress in a way that's just easy and comfortable but isn't necessarily a way that shows their personality or, or dressing in a way that, that they want to. And so I just realised that I wanted to kind of show people that there are ways to dress that can suit your disability and that can work for you and can make you feel amazing and empower you, give you that confidence every day to feel the best version of yourself. Well, you are on a mission now to drive a big movement for change in the fashion industry here <laughs> in Australia. So can you tell us a bit about Styleability and why you started it? Yeah, so Styleability um, was an idea that came about probably about three or four years ago. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something within the fashion industry, but I just didn't know what that looked like and also what I could do given my situation. And I started to see that Instagram was starting to have this shift in terms of what what was on there and what we were starting to see. It was becoming more and more diverse. And it was fantastic to start to see people with all different disabilities posting about their life and, and not hiding away anymore. And I, I just thought there's a real opportunity here to highlight fashion and disability, but in a way that's probably not been done before. Often fashion for people with disabilities is very old-fashioned or medical grades, hospital grades. Um, and so I wanted to kind of change that and make it more accessible but also more mainstream. So my ultimate goal with Styleability is going to be to consult and educate with um, brands, retailers and designers on how to make mainstream fashion much more accessible and inclusive for people with disability and giving people with a disability a voice and confidence to go out there, know where to shop, know how to shop, know what works for their style and their disability and just I suppose being a visual um, or having that visual voice is really important. Yeah and I mean you mentioned the inclusive fashion I think that term inclusive or adaptive fashion is possibly quite a new term for some people can you explain what it means and and what could fashion brands be doing to be more inclusive? Yeah so uh, adaptive would be something, for example, if you have um, a pair of pants and there's an elasticated waist rather than maybe a button or a zip. Um, you might have shirts that have magnetic strips 
which means you can do a map in office, you know, without having to do buttons. But it's very much, especially with people who have limited grip or um, dexterity issues. And it's just looking at how we can make fashion, I suppose, a lot more accessible. So obviously the clothes is a big part of that, but even just the store layout, um, how it's made out, whether the changing rooms are accessible, the tool registers, what height they're at for people to be able to access, the marketing and the promotional campaigns in terms of having models sitting down or models in a wheelchair. And then there's a website accessibility as well, how to navigate that, especially for a lot of people that may be visually impaired who use um, certain devices on their laptop um, to read what's on that uh, website. Sometimes it's not um, accessible for them. So there's a, there's a whole a whole lot of work that needs to be done and clothing obviously is one portion of that. But, um, mm. yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting when we spoke previously, you were saying, you know, yes, there are specific websites that may cater for adaptive fashion, but you couldn't necessarily just walk into a Meyer or a David Jones or a Westfields as a person with a disability mm. and shop in the same way mm. that someone else would shop in terms of finding the kind of clothes that are easy for you to put on and and some of the things you just described. But, um, but yeah, I was interested on your website. You talked about, you know, big brands like Tommy Hilfiger and Nike overseas, you know, having these adaptive fashion ranges, but where it seemed to be a little bit behind the eight ball here in Australia. Mm. So what are some of the things that you, you are seeing overseas that are encouraging you? Yeah, I think I think Tommy Hilfiger really kind of hit the nail on the head. And that's probably where I'm looking to kind of have an influence, is that this is a massive brand and what he's done is stuck true to his core collection. Um, he hasn't deviated at all. He's stuck to his core collection with a white shirt, his signature jeans, sweatshirt and a jacket. But he's made really small but really important changes to make that more accessible. So with the jeans, it may be a higher rise in the back, which is great if you're in a wheelchair. It may be no buttons and Velcro instead. What else? Are the magnetic buttons on the shirt? So those kind of changes are really great. But what I loved about what Tommy did was it wasn't, it didn't feel like a separate range. It felt just the same as his usual Tommy Hilfiger range, but had been made accessible. And that's what I feel we could really look at doing with some mainstream brands, is having some really core pieces, but walking to the shop and that white shirt looks like another white, shop, a white shirt in store, but it's been made adaptive or accessible for everyone to be able to wear. And how open have some of the bigger brands been to meeting with you? I know it's early days for your business, but have you had any successes so far? I'm currently, I've, uh, I've had a bit of a chat with Kmart and they seem quite um, open to having those conversations. It's still really early days for me. And at the moment, I'm still doing lots of research because obviously I can only talk about my disability and I want to... Um, I'd like to kind of get as much knowledge as I can on other disabilities and feel that I'm having a voice for as many different disabilities as I can and representing them in the right way. 
So, um, yeah, it is still early days, but I've got a few places in mind that I, I really mm. want to have a chat with. Well, yeah, I think you make a really, you've made a really good point as well that, um, you know, one in five Australians have a disability. So this is not a small market we're talking about. Yeah. It's not just about fashion brands or retailers doing the right thing. It, it could actually be a very smart business move mm. for them. Completely. And I think that's the thing. I think obviously from a moral, moral point of view, it's important that we are inclusive for everyone. But from a, from a business sense, it, it's um, yeah, financially it can have a huge impact. And it's a whole new demographic of customers that they probably haven't thought about before. But also we are an Asian population and there's many people who have problems with dexterity issues or um, often I think about as well that it's not just people with disabilities. I mean, when we think about people certain situations, if you break an arm, putting on a shirt can be near impossible. But if you have a shirt that has magnetic strips, it's going to make that so much easier. So there's lots of different people that it could benefit. And it's about designing for everyone rather than just a specific customer. Mm. And I know that Instagram forms quite a big part of what you're doing at the moment. I think you just launched it relatively recently, but Mm. I've really enjoyed following what you do on there because it has taught me a lot about issues and yeah, things that I hadn't really thought about before, but also, you know, I know a big part of what you're trying to do with it is break down some of those stereotypes, mm. you know, around this idea that perhaps people with disability can't be stylish or they're mm. not interested in fashion, which is clearly untrue. Um, but yeah, can you talk a bit about what you put on your Instagram and what you're trying to sort of show people with that? Yeah, um, the Instagram is really important for me and I wanted to make it very visual and very, um, it was that fine balance between making it look very stylish but also accessible for people. Um, as I said before, often websites with disability can be quite old-fashioned or feel like um, they're more coming from a hospital point of view. And I wanted to sort of showcase that people with disability can be fashionable and stylish and on trend. Um, so a lot of my um, posts are tips and tricks on um, items that I've bought, why it works for someone in a wheelchair or um, why it might work for someone with um, mobility issues or balance issues or grip issues. Um, and I talk about why it's accessible and how I would style it. Um, and most of the brands are mainstream brands, so it's looking at going into Kmart and Target and finding items that I like, but finding ways to make them work with a disability. So I try and keep it really informative, and that was something I wanted to do from the beginning. Whilst I do my pretty pictures, I also wanted to make it really valuable, and I wanted to give people knowledge because I felt that was key. Uh, that's what I lacked when I had to navigate the world of disability and sort of find myself again. And so I kind of wanted to just share my knowledge and experience on fashion and, and styling um, and also make it fun as well. And do you feel like we're starting to see better representation 
of people with disability in fashion across the board. Like you talked about when you were younger, you dreamt of being a model yourself. And, you know, I know that we have started to see some models with Down syndrome, for example, on the catwalk. I mean, what are you seeing and do you think it's getting better? It's definitely getting better. It's still so far away. And America seems to be ahead, as they normally are. Um, Australia is still quite far behind. Um, and so is the UK. But we are starting to see much more diversity. And I feel that, in a strange way, COVID really shook up the fashion industry. It made the whole fashion industry stop and, and reset and look at what they've been doing and why they've been doing it. And because of that, I feel like there's now conversations that are being had quicker than they possibly would have been before COVID. And part of that is diversity and inclusion um, on on all levels, whether that's race, colour, gender, um, size, shape. Um, and disability being one of those. So we are starting to have those conversations. Um, but it's slow. But I, I've had some really great feedback on Instagram from people without disabilities who have said, thanks, thanks, you know, thanks for doing this page, it's great. And I've never seen anything like this before. And it's really refreshing to see and to follow. Um, and then I've had designers sort of say, this is really not, you know, this is great. When this is more of this. So I think people want to see it. I just think we're not, we're not quite there yet. So is Stylability a side project for you at the moment or is this now your full-time business? Um, it's sort of become a, yeah, full-time. So um, I'm still spending a lot of time doing rehab and I do a lot of disability advocacy as well, which is sort of being involved with different groups and um, being on their sort of co-design teams and volunteering my time and, and my expertise in that area. And that's still really important to me, but sustainability is kind of where my passion lies. So between that and studying, um, yeah, that's kind of most of my time is taken up at the moment. Mm, what are you studying? I'm studying personal styling. Uh, right. Some image consultancy. Great. So that will be another string to your bow. <laughs> and so, what does a typical work day look like for you now? So, um, typical day would be, um, I suppose, getting content for the blog, um, taking photos, researching current trends. Um, researching products that I want to try, having lots of Zoom meetings and phone calls, lots of time on Instagram and Facebook, and just getting out and about and talking to people and um, and having those conversations. So that's in the new year, that's kind of I want to sort of get going, um, get the ball really rolling with having more conversations and getting my foot in the door, talking to uh, some of his brands and retailers and, and sort of start to see a bit of movement happening here in Australia. And, you know, as someone who is just sort of at the beginning of your business journey, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned so far in terms of starting or running your own business? Oh, gosh, um, there's been a lot. Um, <laughs> I would say maybe just 
just uh, that's probably something that I put off for a long time was feeling that I was never going to be ready and worries about how it would be received and um, worries if I could even do it and uh, worries about other people's opinions um, and kept waiting to feel that I was ready. And I think the biggest thing is you're never going to be ready, but it's about just starting. And once you start, you, you are constantly learning. From people every day, I learn something new. So it's just having the confidence, I suppose, to back yourself and, and to believe in what you're doing. And um, if this doesn't go anywhere, then I've had a lot of fun with the Instagram, but I've also feel like I've made a difference in terms of raising awareness and starting some of those conversations. So I think taking the pressure off a little bit helps as well. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and I actually spotted a lovely quote on your blog which said, being brave isn't supposed to be easy but it is the key to moving forward. Yeah. So with everything you've been through, what would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? Oh, gosh. I would say probably the, oh, the bravest moment would probably be sustainability because I felt like I was really putting myself out there and having to be very vulnerable and open to um, positive and negative comments or feedback. But I think for me, it was it was such an important thing that I had to start. And I feel that if I can make a difference to just one person, then I feel like it was all worth it. So I think just backing yourself sometimes is probably the key to being brave. Yeah. And I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women too. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? I'd have to say... First would be my mum, um, and that probably goes right back to that initial day when I collapsed, and I remember just laying there, not being able to move or talk, and um, my mum said, but I looked like a scared rabbit in headlights, and she just said to me, did you realise that you either sink or you swim? She said, but remember, you're always going to be a swimmer. And I think those words just really stuck with me. And I, I always try and think, but, you know, when times do get tough, you, you do have an option. You can either sink with the tough times or you can swim and paddle like hell towards the good times. Um, so my mum would definitely be my number one um, in terms of she's brave and strong, she's caring and kind and... Very selfless as well, um, just always there to help people regardless. Um, and then there's just some amazing women in business as well. Um, I was part of the Mamma Mia Made the Startup group and doing that course was amazing on so many levels, but what I found it the most was the connections with other women and women who were there to encourage and support and lift each other up and there was no competition or comparing. It was just everyone was there for each other. That really made a big difference and probably encouraged me to start more than if I'd done that on my own. 
Yeah, I think that's so important. I mean, I think as as um, exciting and challenging as a starting a business can be, it can be quite isolating as well. So yeah. having that it's a virtual network of women um, yeah, helping you keep going, it's, yeah, really yeah, valuable. I felt that very much so in that doing this business, um, it felt very new and um, I felt like there hadn't been anything like this before and it's very niche. And so I did at times feel very sort of isolated on my own and I had no one to compare to or look up to in terms of how to start this. And so having other women to just encourage me to have a go really made a big difference. And if there's someone listening out there who is perhaps overcoming a huge challenge of their own or maybe looking to start their own purpose-driven business, do you have any final tips for them? Um, I think my biggest tip would be probably to be kind to yourself. That's a lesson I've had to learn along the way, both in recovery and with business, is that often we put pressure on ourselves and um, we're very hard on ourselves. And I think just being kind to yourself and giving yourself a pat on the back now and again really makes a big difference and to realise that it is brave to put yourself out there and, you know, we should be proud of ourselves for things that we do and we achieve in life. And I think just taking that time to just be a bit kinder to yourself makes a big difference. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jenny. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much, Jackie. I've really enjoyed it. That was Jenny McAllister, founder of Styleability, which you can find at styleability.com.au and also on Instagram and Facebook. We'll put the details in our show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. And we are proud to be a part of the Women's Agenda Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.